A.W. Tozer has this quote, and it's probably one if you've been around or read very often, you've, you've seen before. I should have it up here on the screen for you. But the quote goes like this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Just let that sit. Don't even read the second part of it yet. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What you think about God has an internal impact on who you are. And then the second part of his quote says, always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Isn't that true? Isn't it revealing when you stop and you think in our nation that we see churches diminishing at an alarming rate? We're seeing less and less younger people going into the ministry. We see more and more people moving away from God, ignoring God, blaspheming God. They're, they're moving in a direction whereby they determine what God is and who he is and how he reacts to the things of this world to fit their own wisdom, their own understanding, and their own insight. They have lowered God from his glory and brought him to their own standard. And do we find the church growing weaker? Do we find the church growing more apprehensive in the, in the work of God, in the ministry of God, because the church has lost a vision and an understanding about who God is? Individually and corporately, the most important thing is what we think about God. It impacts us. Our idea of God reveals our hearts and our mission as individuals within the church, but also corporately as the church. Do we as God's people understand and believe the reality that we have an everlasting message that impacts individuals for eternity? that takes them from death to life, do we understand the impact of the reality of God's word and what the gospel does in our lives as it sets us free in the grace that he has given us and the mercy he's bestowed upon us and the power in which he rose his own son, Jesus, from the dead. That same power works in us is what Ephesians chapter 1 tells us. Do we understand the reality of that? We need to know and have an understanding of who God is and the God that we serve. We need to be a people who set our gaze upon him, a people who behold him in the world of constant distractions that weaken our faith, that weaken the church. We never find the wisdom of humanity to be sufficient in comparison to the glory and the majesty of our God, the, the everlasting one. We will always find truth there when we look upon him. I think in John chapter six, when Jesus said some hard things and many of the disciples from that point on began to quit following him. Uh, he looks at the 12 and he says, you too, are you going to leave? Are you, are you going to quit following me? And Peter, who you love, and you know, he, he lashes out and he does, 
I, there's a lot I like about Peter, but Peter says, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Do you think that what Peter thought and the other 12 about who God is had a tremendous impact, was the most important thing in their lives? Absolutely. Where they would have left just like the others. When the things that were being said were hard, when the things that were being said that they couldn't understand, in a season like we live right now, in the time that we live now, we need to behold the glory of our God. We need to behold the mercy and the grace of our God who sent his son, Jesus Christ. It blows me away when I begin to think that the almighty God was found in a manger, in the likeness of sinful flesh. The God who holds the measure of, of water, of all the waters in his hands. And, and, the, and, the, and the governments are like, like the dust on this table compared to who he is. He brings kings and nations to nothing. He, he does as he please because he is the sovereign almighty God. And we as his people need to behold him and we need to know who he is. The next three weeks in Isaiah, we will be holding our God. When we look to our God, we see perspective. When we look to our God, it is when peace and comfort and joy become the fruit of our lives. It's when we look to God that is when, our, when his purpose begins to guide us and lead us and direct us. It's when we behold the awesome God that we serve who is inexhaustible. In other words, he does not grow weary in keeping his people in his hand. His grace knows no end. His mercy knows no end. His power to keep his people and to complete the work that he has started in their lives is, is, is attainable because of his everlasting power. It doesn't run weak. It doesn't run tired. It doesn't grow weary. And do we fear the nations? Let us behold our God. Do we fear the politics of our day? Do we fear the culture of our day? Are we shaken by the things of our day? Let us stop and step back and behold the sovereignty and the majesty of our God. Let us not be afraid. Let us be at rest. I love the quote by Carrie Timboom. I wanted to play her saying this, but it was so... because. She's passed many years, but it was just so crackly. I didn't. This is the way the quote goes. She said, if you look to the world, you will be distressed. If you look within, you will be depressed. If you look to God, you will be at rest. That's a powerful word, isn't it? Powerful word. So when we walk into Isaiah 40, it's a transition in the book. The first 39 chapters of this book Isaiah's talking to his generation. He's talking, talking about how Jerusalem, even though there's sin and there's, there's issues within the nation, they would be delivered from Assyria. And if you have never read it, you need to read it. Go read about Hezekiah and, and how Assyria came and they're crying out into the, over, the, over the walls in Hebrew, trying to scare the people, tell them not to trust their God, not to trust King Hezekiah. It's, a, it's an amazing story, but, but Isaiah told them, do not fear, you will be delivered. And God delivered them. Assyria went back. 
And when you look at the map, Greg showed me this week, you look at the map, here's a little, this little spot of, of, of the southern kingdom of, of Israel. And there's just this little yellow spot, and it's just green all the way around, all over the place. They're just surrounded by their enemy. And that was so true in that day. There was enemies all around them that threatened Assyria and Babylon. In fact, in chapter 39, the representatives of Babylon come and Hezekiah wasn't wise, but he did. He kind of took them in and showed them everything. He withheld nothing. And Isaiah preaches how Babylon's going to come or prophesies how Babylon's going to come and take them captive. In fact, when you walk into chapter 40 and you begin to look from then on, you're, you're really kind of propelled 100 years from this point in time. He's prophesying about what will happen, that the Babylonian con, uh, captivity is going to come and it's going to take place. And the result was because of their sin. There's consequences for sin. You do know that, right? I, know, I never like talking about it, but it's so real. And it's because of their sin, they're forced to travel 900 miles and the southern kingdom of Judah was defeated and exiled to Babylon. They were dejected. They were distraught. They were told they would remain in captivity for 70 years. Why do you think Daniel was always praying and he knew, he knew that deliverance was about to come because God had said through the prophet of Isaiah that it would only be 70 years and he continued to pray. He had faith and he knew. But it was because of their sins and if you look at some of the prayers of Daniel, Daniel prayed and for the sins of, their, of, of his people. And it was a very difficult time of judgment during that time. It is here in Isaiah 40 that that hope arrives. It's packed full of hope and encouragement and restoration. Isaiah prophesied that they would be taken captive, but now in chapter 40 and beyond, he begins to, to tell them that they will be set free. They will return and know the faithfulness of their God. And God is saying to his people here, you have sinned, but now turn from your sin and get your eyes on me. Isn't it a message we need to hear today? Isn't it a message that we, even in this room, need to be reminded of? That we become so gazed and, and we, we, we hold our God and understand who our God is to the point that we realize and we yield ourselves to him. God says to his people, you are weak, but I am strong. I am the Lord God Almighty. I am the sovereign God. Behold your sovereign God. Let me ask you, dear people of God, do you believe that God is sovereign? From everlasting to everlasting, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, then what do we need to fear? In chapter 40 of Isaiah, beginning in verse 1 and 2, I just want to read those. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double all of her sins. Comfort, comfort, listen to those words. Comfort, comfort, speak tenderly. Cry to her. Now place yourself in the context of which this is written. Place yourself in Judah and your God's chosen people. 
You've heard the glorious stories and victories of how God has over and over and over again came to the defense and provided for his people. But you are a captive in a foreign land and you're there because of your own sin. There must have been a sense of of grief, maybe even a sense of failure among God's people. I don't know about you, but there's sometimes when, man, God just exposes the foolishness of my heart. And sin is there. And you just think, gosh, how do I get away? It's overwhelming. It's in that moment. It's in that moment of, that we find ourselves in the sense of failure and our need for restoration. But Isaiah here, he brings out in the midst of their failure, he brings God's comfort. In the context of Isaiah 39 and 40, it's kind of the the lowest point of Israel in their bondage of, of iniquity because of their sin. And it's important to understand that even in the time of their pain, God's comfort comes. It's in those moments when we realize that, that we are in need and, and, and the devastation of our iniquity, yet the grace of God comes flooding in. And if you haven't experienced that, you're missing out. To find to a place where, where God restores and builds up and he cries to his people, comfort, comfort. Speak tenderly to them. It's kind of like as a parent when you had a child that they did something wrong and the consequence has to happen. But in your heart, you're just, you're moved. You want the best for them. You want them to experience the joy and the goodness. And you know they have to go through that in order to be able to learn and to grow. Our God does the same. It's important to understand that God will allow pain to enter our lives as a consequence of our sin. God will allow it because it's through pain when we are most ready to receive the comfort of God. It's kind of like God is like, you know, you choose idolatry. You want to choose idolatry? You want to choose sin? You want to, want to choose to reject me? You want to choose to kind of live your own way and go your own direction? God's like, I will discipline you. I will discipline you because I love you. Just like a mother or a father loves their children and disciplines them and guides them. I will will love you and I will let you feel the pain and the consequences of your sin. But in your sin, in your hurt, the comfort and grace of our God floods in. God does not leave his people there. He brings comfort. And so we behold our awesome God. Why does he say comfort twice? It's, a, it's, a, it's spoken as an emphasis. It speaks of the urgency and the emotional intensity of our God. That how beautiful it is that the compassion of God reaches out in the moment of failure of his people when they were rejecting him. And he speaks tenderly. I love the part where he says there and the warfare is ended 
God allows seasons of battles and trials in our lives, but it is in his sovereignty he teaches us if we soften our hearts and we have repentant hearts and we don't harden them, it is there that he teaches of his grace, of his strength and of his sovereignty. Understand the sovereignty of God, people. Isaiah is prophesying about what is going to happen and how it will end. God is, God is the king of history. It's not like Babylon could sit there and go, we're not going to let you go. God is decreed and he is determined. And God sets his ways and the governments of humanity are like a drop in the bucket compared to who he is and all of his power and his glory. And he says there in the last part, her iniquity is pardoned. Isn't it amazing that we have a God? In fact, he says double. He, he pours grace on him. Isn't it amazing that we have the almighty God who is holy, who is perfect, who cannot look on iniquity, who cannot look on sin, who cannot be defiled by unrighteousness. But he pardoned. This week we're had some theological discussions that were happening around here a little bit and uh, got into a little bit of discussion and, and uh, had to go home and I was thinking through and, and the reality that we were thinking about is just the, the, the majesty of our God and how he forgives. And I got home one night and I was just thinking about that the massive statement of forgiveness here by our God. You know, I mean, so many times we, we kind of look, I mean, I mean, I look at myself and I see all of my shortcomings and I, and I think, God, please don't show me too many at once because I just don't think I can handle it. And then I think, I think, man, like how many times people can just point out my own sins and my own iniquities. I mean, Probably some of you could come up here and start a really good list. And there is a good list. And we get so focused on that, God pardons it. He pardons us because of the work of his son. His grace floods in. Throughout scripture, God breaks us to heal us. He corrects us to renew us. He brings discipline that he might comfort us with his grace. God works in us to conform us to be like his son. Have you learned to recognize the discipline of God in your life in order to be able to rest in his comfort? When everything, in fact, I think I said it to, to Matt this week. I say it every now and then. I just like, gosh, I don't know why I ever would want to preach. It's just such a, it's such a, a pain. Everybody has a problem with it. Some people are offended. And my life is just a lot easier when I don't preach too, I found. I have more time to do my own thing. You know, and back when I was in college, I used to say, you can do anything else rather than preach or be a ministry, you better do it. 
I could do that. But then sometimes God just puts things on your heart. He calls you to do things that isn't always comfortable. He calls you to do things because he wants to use you. He wants to show himself in your life. It's often in our failure that the comfort of God comes. Not only in our failure, but it's in our repentance that we see God coming. We're not even going to get through this chapter in three weeks. I just want you to know that. (laughs) Verses three through five, a voice cries. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord for those that are in the wilderness. For those that are struggling, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. For those that are in the desert, for those that sometimes find themselves distant from God, every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall be level and the rough places a plain And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. Prepare the way of the Lord. Preparations for the the Lord must be made. In those days, in the time of Isaiah, when kings traveled, they often carried their thrones and and so they had to prepare the road. They They would make it straight. They would level it out. And they would prepare the way. And it really becomes a metaphor, if you would, for God's people to prepare their heart for the Lord. And when you look at this prophecy, there's a couple of fulfillments that take place here. One is the literal that we understand where he's prophesying that the people of Babylon would be taken in captivity and he will bring them back. He He will see them back. But the second speaks of the fulfillment where it's fulfilled in John the Baptist. Do you realize all four Gospels quotes this verse right here, verse 3? All four of them. It speaks of the way that John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus. Now just stop and think for a minute. Think for a minute. What was the ministry of John the Baptist? How did John the Baptist Prepare the way for Jesus. I mean, obviously it's important because it's in all four Gospels. When you think about John the Baptist's ministry, you can think about it in one word. What is it? What is it? Preparation. It's repentance, right? Repentance. A baptism of repentance is what John did. Repentance prepares and readies our hearts to receive the Lord into our lives. Repentance is what sets us in, our, in the right mindset to understand what God is doing. It is through the preparations of God's word in our life as we study it. Why is it that Daniel continued to pray and looked off and knew the time was coming? Because he knew the word of God. 
And as the preparation of God's word in our lives, and as God's people repent and submit themselves to God, that the grace of God begins to work in our lives, and a greater work for the Lord can be done, and a work of God whereby he is taking place in our lives to make us more and more like his son. We need, we need hearts of repentance. Have we grown to the place where we allow arrogance in our lives to the place that we think our way is the only way? Have we grown in such a way that we begin to think that we live without regard of the Lord? We just go about and do our own way and our own thing. We need repentance. Do we hold grudges and bitterness that cause disunity among us and disunity with our God when we serve a God of unity and a God that brings his people together? We need repentance. Has sin become so commonplace in our lives that it's become easier to just accept it, to explain it away, and to just ignore it. God's people need repentance. To, to make straight the path. We need to prepare our hearts of repentance. That we might give way to the work of the Lord in our lives. The greatest sin of humanity is the sin to diminish God in our lives. And we begin to diminish God in our lives when we begin to remove him from our daily life, from our daily activities, when we don't take him into consideration as we move about in this world, when we become more fearful of the things around us than we are fearful of the almighty God from everlasting to everlasting, the king of kings who hold our lives in the palm of his hands, all around us in our culture, in our politics, in our individual pursuits, we see a rejecting of God, a laughing of God, a mocking of God. Let us not be a people of fear. What an opportunity for the people of God with broken and contrite hearts to be used for his glory and for his purposes. This isn't a time for us to shrink back. This is a time for us to boldly step forth because we behold who our God is from everlasting to everlasting, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. There is never a time in the past, eternal past. There's never a time in the eternal future and never a time in the eternal present that God isn't God. He's a sovereign king and the Lord of lords and to him we need to behold. What an opportunity for God's people with repentant hearts and yielded hearts to allow the Almighty God to work. And there at the last part in verse 5, he says, and the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What does he mean? That God will do exactly what he said he would do. God has promised us because of the work of his son, Jesus Christ, to bring us into eternity with him. He will do exactly what he said he will do. In my failure, God is my comfort. In my repentance, God is, my God is coming. In my frailty, my God is in control. Look at verses six through eight. It says, and a voice cries, and I said, 
What shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all the beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breach of the Lord, breath of the Lord blows on it, surely people, the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower, flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. Right here we see the majesty and the majest, that our God is majestic in his sovereignty. Here's the point. We are frail. We are temporal. We are so finite and we are so weak, but our awesome God is all powerful and he is eternal. He will see it through. In Isaiah's day, there was so much fear of the empires around them. And it was easy for them to want to think somehow by their kind of making an alliance with Egypt, they would be more protected. Or an alliance with another country, they'd be more protected. But no, it was their alliance. It was their, the fact that they were, their, they were God's people that was their security. And it's not changed in our day any differently. We stand because of who God is. And the word of God gives us a reality check in so many ways here because we live in a world that elevates itself above God or at least equal with God. And he says, all flesh is as grass. We know, we know that grass is fleeting and we just see it every summer, don't we, in Texas? Flowers are beautiful and then they fade. In fact, I got a picture up here. This is probably the only plant that I, that I kind of love. It's called a star cactus. See that, see that flower? It's beautiful. I, I got that. You see all those little stems going up? There was just one when I got it. And now it's about four times the size of that. And I've, because of my wife, I've learned, you know, you can keep replanting it and grow more. It's really kind of cool. But that flower, when it blooms up, it lasts maybe 24 hours, 48 hours at most. And then it just withers. It's such a beautiful flower. And then boom, it's gone. But you know what? Our word of God never goes that way. The word of God stands from er, from, for forever. Generations come and generations go, but the sovereignty of God and his word stands forever. God will do exactly what he says. Look at verse six. He, he asks, he says, what shall I cry? What is it that I should say? All flesh is grass, but my word stands forever. Understand that. Dear people of God, when you look at your God, when you're beholding your God, we are temporal, we are frail, but he is not. He is strong. He is almighty. From everlasting to everlasting, he will do exactly as he says, and he will do as he wishes because he is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and there's none like him. Yeah, that is an amen. amen. Hear me now to this, people. Dear people of God, understand this. Be humble before your God. Be humble. Submit yourselves before God. Live by the truth of his word and behold the sovereignty of God. In my failure, God is my comfort. In my repentance, my God is coming. In my frailty, God is in control. So let's behold our God. Look at verse nine. Go on, go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. 
Lift your voice right there, by the way. If you ever say, hey, Greg yells too much or he gets too loud, he gets, I, I got biblical reason. I just want you to understand that. <laughs> Lift up your voice with strength. Oh, Jerusalem, herald of the good news, lift up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold your God. You're surrounded by Assyria. You're surrounded by Babylon. Behold your God. You live in a culture that denies him and rejects him, who elevates themselves over him. Behold your God and stand firm. Fear not. Fear not, dear people of God. Go tell it on a mountain and lift up your voice with strength. Don't reel back. Don't grow in fear. Don't shudder in the midst of controversy. Don't shudder in the midst of conflict. Stand firm on who your God is. Do you know, dear people of God, who your God is? Have you behold your sovereign God? Whoo! That is our God. Behold him, the God of glory the God of strength, the God of majesty, the God of wisdom, the God of sovereignty, the God of power, the God of dominion from everlasting to everlasting. That is our God. To him be the glory. To him be the praise. Let us not shrink back as his people. Dear people of God, hear us. Hear me. Hear me. Let me encourage you. Let me, let me stimulate you that you not be fearful because we serve an almighty God. Verse 10, he says, Behold, the Lord God comes with might. His arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend, I love this last verse because it just shows our God and the shepherding and the caring. He will tend to his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. You think our God cares? He is a caring God. The Lord comes with might He's going to bring back his people from captivity just as he said he would. He conquered sin and death and the work of his son that he might pour on those who would repent to those who would yield themselves to him. He has poured on them grace and mercy and those that with repentive hearts. And at the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, he will come with sovereign power and he will defeat his enemies and he will gather his people. Behold your God. Behold him, your sovereign God. In this season, when we remember and we're buying gifts and we remember the family and all those are good things, let us not forget that the God Almighty stepped into our world. In all of his sovereignty and his power and his glory and his majesty, he stepped into our world and he called us to himself. The mercy and the grace and the majesty set aside those things that distract us from our God. Set aside the phones sometimes. 
Set aside all the activities and be quiet. Go out into the still places of your life. Find that quiet place and just go and be still and know that he is God. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we, we just ask today, Father, that you move in our hearts. Father, I, even as I stand here, I know the, the foolishness and the issues of my own life and the realities of these words and, this, and the teaching of your word in this chapter is just so powerful. But Father, I just focus in on the reality that Lord, just as you and your compassion and your grace and your mercy uh, demonstrated to us your love through the work of your son, you also have the power and the dominion and the sovereignty to make those things happen. And I've already done it. Isn't that the beauty? God, I pray for those that are here, some this morning. Father, they just needed to be reminded of the truth of who you are. And I pray, God, you encourage them and you strengthen them and you establish them. I pray, Father, for some this morning who maybe have been living in rebellion and it's time to repent. And I pray that, Father, their hearts would be repentive. Maybe some here this morning, Father, who have never come to that place where they've received Christ in their, their life. They never, Father, have, have received you. They've never believed in what you have done. They've They've given token, they've made acknowledgement, but have never really received you into their life by faith. I pray today, Father, that would be the case. Your word tells us today is the day of salvation. Now is the time. Father, do as you please, that your spirit would move among us for your glory and purposes. In Jesus' name, amen.